1: Sean Carroll is a research professor of theoretical physics at the California Institute of Technology. His research focuses on fundamental physics and cosmology, quantum gravity and space-time, and the evolution of entropy and complexity. His most recent book is Something Deeply Hidden, Quantum Worlds and the Emergence of Space-Time. He is the host of the weekly Mindscape podcast. Annalee Newitz is an American journalist and author of fiction and nonfiction. They have written for Popular Science, The New Yorker, and The Washington Post. They founded the science fiction website, io9, and served as editor-in-chief from 2008 to 2015. Their book, Scatter, Adapt, and Remember, How Humans Will Survive a Mass Extinction was nominated for the LA Times Book Prize in Science. Their first novel, Autonomous, won a Lambda Award, and it is Lambda Lit Fest right now, so woo-woo! They are a contributing op ed writer at the New York Times and the host with Charlie Jane Anders of the podcast Our Opinions Are Correct, forceful title, Uh, which won a Hugo this year. All right, please put your hands together and give a warm skylight welcome to Annalie Newitz.
2: thanks for coming out. Um, I've written a novel about changing history um, and it's a good week for it to come out because I think we're watching history change again, um, at least in this country. Um, So I'm going to read to you a little bit from the book and uh, before I start I just wanted to talk about kind of what's going on in here. This is a it's a time travel book, uh, which can mean a lot of different things. And in this case, it means something extremely weird, partly thanks to Sean, who I <laughs> interviewed before I started writing the book. Um, I talked to Sean and another physicist, Adam Becker, and they both told me very gently after I asked them, you know, how can I make time travel as scientifically accurate as possible? They both, in their own ways, said, no. Um, <laughs> that is not a thing. Um, Adam actually said, uh, you know. Time travel is not a physical device, it's a literary device. Um, And after I talked to Sean a lot, and I'll actually read a section of the book that was really influenced by that conversation, he finally begrudgingly said, fine, you can use wormholes. Um, (laughs) Sort of pulled it out of him. We'll talk about that later. Um, So in this book, uh, there's a group, uh, time travel has always existed. Um, So traveling through time is kind of a discovery science, like geology or astronomy, where Um, These machines have been embedded in the Earth's surface for uh, millions of years. So throughout uh, known human history, people have been rewriting history. So there's no person who invents a time machine. It's just people have always been messing around with history. And there's a group of geologists. Geology is kind of the science of time travel in this world because um, the machines are found in rocks. And there's a group of geologists at UCLA um, who are feminists who are secretly changing history. They, are, they have grants and such to go back and study history and to kind of observe history, and they, they go through a lot of academic bureaucracy to get those grants and to get access to the machine, uh, but they are secretly changing it. Um, and my main character, Tess, uh, who is a professor at UCLA, um, is specifically trying to... Um, make abortion legal in the United States because this is an alternate timeline where abortion never became legal in the US. Um, And so she has a hypothesis that if she goes back to the 19th century and certain other key periods, um, she can set things up so that it becomes uh, legal. Um, And so she's also on, she's on this kind of big political mission. She's also on kind of a personal mission. Um, she's trying to fix something in her own past, which means right away that there's going to be some paradoxes here. So I'm gonna read to you a little bit from the very beginning of the book. This is from Tess's point of view, she's the time traveler, and she's gone back to a key point uh, for her personally and also politically. Drums beat in the distance like an amplified pulse. People streamed over the dirt road, leather boots laced to their knees, eyes ringed in coal, ears and lips studded with precious metals. Some gathered in an open square below the steep path to the amphitheater, making a bonfire out of objects stolen from their enemies. The smoke reeked of something ancient and horrific, materials far older than humanity were burning. A rusty sunset painted everyone in blood, and shrieks around the flames mixed with faraway chanting. It could have been Rome under Nero. It could have been Samarkand when the Sogdians fled. It could have been Ataturk's new Istanbul or a feast day in Chaco Canyon. The technologies were industrial, neolithic, and medieval. The screams were geochronologically neutral. I paused, smelling the toxins, watching a woman with jet black lips and blue hair pretend to eat a spider. One of her companions laughed. Michelle, you are so gross. This isn't an Aussie concert. (laughs) They paused at the ticket booths to flip off the vice fighters, a gang of conservative protesters waving signs covered in Bible quotes, Some of them were burning CDs in a garbage can, and the stench of melting plastic formed a noxious bubble around their demonstration. The machine had not delivered me to an ancient war, nor to an anti-imperialist celebration. I was at Irvine Meadows Amphitheater in 1992, deep in the heart of Orange County, Alta, California. Some of you may know this place. (laughs) But I wasn't here for history tourism. Somewhere in the rowdy concert crowd, a dangerous conspiracy was unfolding. I needed to find out who was behind it. If these bastards succeeded, they would destroy time travel, locking us into one version of history forever. I bought a lawn seat and raced up the winding pedestrian walkway to the seating area. Spotlights sent a cluster of beams racing around the stage. Grape Ape's lead singer, Glorious Garcia, strutted out alone, sequins on her tattered skirt shimmering in the glare. She let out a furious howl. Hola, bitches! If anyone called you a slut today, say it with me! Slut! 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 Come on, you guys. We'll try it again. All around me, women joined the chant. They wore battered combat boots, shredded jeans, and wrecked dresses. They had tattoos and black nail polish and looked like warrior queens from another planet. Tangled hair flashed in every possible artificial color. You sluts are beautiful! Glorious fisted the air and aimed her mic at the crowd, still chanting, Slut! 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 Good job. You did better than Washington, D.C. did last night. (laughs) That was a hard crowd. Back when I went to this concert for the first time, I was an angry 16-year-old with too many piercings for suburbia, wearing a military jacket over a 1950s dress. Now I was 47 on the books and 55 if you count travel time. So for those of you who are time travel aficionados, you know that that's about to be a paradox because she's going to be in the same place as herself. And so that's kind of one of the strands in the book is that Tess is revisiting her own history. She's trying to prevent herself and her friends who are these tough riot girls from you know, murdering a bunch of guys because that's kind of what you do in Orange County in 1992. Um, so they're murdering, they're murdering rapists kind of in the, in the spirit of riot girl, um, but actually murder is wrong. So she's trying to kind of fix that uh, but she also has another mission that she's on. Um, and this is kind of, you know, so she's on this mission to, to change the timeline, to make abortion legal. But she's also a scientist. Um, and one of the fantasies I have in this book is imagining a discipline where um, basically cultural analysts and scientists have to work together And so there's cultural geologists who are basically time travelers, and then there's just geologists who kind of study geology and time machines and how they work. Um, And of course, there's a lot of snarking between them. You know, the the geologists think that the cultural geologists are kind of not really real, and applied cultural geologists are really lowly. Um, That's extremely um, low on the totem pole. But they're all working together to try to understand how time works and how history works, more importantly. Um, and they're in this heavily edited timeline, and the language that they use to talk about it is basically ripped off from Wikipedia. They talk about editing the timeline, reverting edits, and then, of course, they talk a lot about, well, eventually, merging conflicts that happen, you know, if you perhaps meet yourself. Um, so I wanted to read you one more scene. Um, which is actually, as I said, based on uh, conversations that I had with Sean when I was trying to (laughs) desperately make this uh, scientific. Um, And we talked about um, how time might work and how you might imagine uh, these functions of um, historical change uh, kind of playing out. Um, And what this is, this is the kind of book, I have to tell you, in which there is a scene where a character visits a professor in office hours and has a conversation. Um, <laughs> and, um, I mean, a lot of the characters are professors. And so the other, char- the other main character in the book is this teenage uh, girl, Beth, who's a riot girl who's growing up in Irvine, like I did. Um, and uh, Beth has been getting visits from Tess, the time traveler, and Tess is trying to tell her not without telling the future she doesn't want to give her spoilers but trying to tell her don't do certain things that are going to lead you down a dark path so beth eventually kind of escapes from irvine and starts going to ucla and taking a class She, she wants to study real geology not time travel but she has to take one class in cultural geology and so she doesn't really understand the cultural side of time travel so she goes to visit her professor Uh, whose name is Anita, and who is actually later uh, the leader of that secret group of feminist time travelers. But at this point, it's 1993, um, and Beth is just, she's trying to do her midterm. So she goes to visit Anita in her office hours, and Beth starts out saying to Anita, I don't understand the difference between the two theories of history. Isn't collective action aimed at affecting a few great men I mean, protest is a form of collective action, but aren't they protesting because they want to change what powerful politicians do? So there's two theories of historical change. There's the collective action theory and the great man theory. Anita twirled a pen over her thumb and nodded. That's a good question. The difference is that the great man approach assumes that there are only a few people who can change the timeline at any given moment. And by the way, they happen to be male, she snorted. But the collective action approach assumes that change is a complex process that comes from many quarters with many people participating. So the end result might look the same, but the process is really different. But it still seems like you have to be a powerful person to change the timeline. Well, maybe. From my perspective as a traveler, I think the main advantage of the collective action hypothesis is that it accounts for context. Let me give you an example. In 1993, I can be a professor and order you to write a midterm essay and you'll do it. I'm kind of a great man if you think of it that way. But when I'm back in the 18th century Caribbean where I do my research, most people assume I'm a slave. Sometimes I get classified as a free person of color because I'm half Indian. My point is, there is no way for me to become a great man in that era, no matter how great I might be objectively. If I want to change anything, I need a community that recognizes my inherent awesomeness That's where your collective action comes in. You can't become great without a community that recognizes you. But the great man theory suggests that certain special people are great regardless of context. I thought about that for a while. So does collective action mean a bunch of people have to band together to edit the timeline or can they be kind of disconnected people making a lot of different edits? It's probably a mix of both. But the honest answer is that nobody knows for sure. She ran a hand over the close-cropped froth of her hair, and I noticed she wore purple nail polish. Are you interested in time traveling one day? Well, I like your class a lot, but I'm more interested in the physical side. I want to study the origins of life in the Cambrian. Well, most of the time machines seem to originate in that same geological period, so maybe you'll wind up studying them a little bit too. There's some great work on wormholes happening here at UCLA. I'd never thought about researching time machines, and I was suddenly intrigued. Where do you think the machines come from? Anita gave an elaborate shrug. It's not really my area, but the jury is definitely out on that one. Some people say it's a natural consequence of crustal formation that we don't understand yet, but that doesn't explain the interface and why it filters out weapons but not clothing. I've always been fond of the idea that it was aliens. I was surprised. Really, do people think that? Sure, or that it was a primordial civilization on Earth. There's so little evidence that you can imagine a lot of things. Most, most geologists agree that the machines were built, or at least the interface was. There's some kind of intelligence behind them. It's not a phenomenon created by plate tectonics or weathering or any other known geophysical process. But there is a physical process involved. The timeline itself, sure, the machines seem to be exploiting a force that pulls potential timelines into our own, but there's a conundrum there too. Let's say there's a cosmic force that is engaged in a constant background shuffling of timelines in the universe. It's like gravity or dark energy. It's causing historical change all the time. If that's true, maybe the machine is simply a viewing booth that allows us to see the shuffling. So we think we're changing things, but that's an illusion. We're just witnessing or remembering a change that would normally be imperceptible. Now I was frustrated. So nobody knows how historical change works culturally or physically? I mean, what are we even doing? Anita grinned. You really should study time machines. We all start out with that same what the hell feeling. It's probably the main driver of scientific insight. <laughs> Thank you. So Sean and I are now going to have a conversation, um, a dueling conversation. <laughs> I mean, not really, a duel.
0: <laughs> I don't know. <laughs>
2: I mean, yeah, it yeah. Could, could happen. I mean, you're the one that told me I could use wormholes, so I don't want to hear you any could. shit. You could.
0: You did. Very well. Wormholes were good.
2: Yeah, good. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad. Yes. I mean, because I wanted, you know, I knew I wanted the time machines to be embedded in rocks, and I was like, okay, well, what, what's going on? So, yeah, there's just wormholes in the rocks. And, uh...
0: You know, like, as we said, time travel is mostly a literary device, <laughs> not a scientific one. But in fact, yeah, I mean, in the early 90s, people like Kip Thorne at Caltech uh, started thinking, do, do you know the whole story of how this started? It was Carl Sagan's fault. Do you Ooh, know the yes. background here? I don't. Carl Sagan uh, wrote this science fiction novel, Contact, right? I remember. And Ellie Arroway, he wanted her to travel through the galaxy very quickly. So he wrote in the novel that she like falls into a black hole and is spit out in the in the first draft. And he was not a physicist, Carl Sagan. He was an astronomer, right? Closely related, but different. And he knew enough that that's probably not accurate, right? Like, Probably you would just die if you fell into a black hole. <laughs> you would not be spit off.
2: I saw so, Interstellar. I don't know. Well, that's the thing.
0: He <laughs> he called his friend Kip Thorne because he was Carl Sagan. He could do that. And uh, and Kip said, no, you don't want a black hole. You want a wormhole, which would really like let you out somewhere else. But uh, and then he said, you know, the problem with worm. Kip said, like the problem with wormholes is it looks to the outside observer like you're moving faster than the speed of light, right? Because you start here and then poof, you're over there. And Kip knows enough about relativity to know that if you can go faster than the speed of light, you can go backward in time. But clearly that's crazy. <laughs> But then you know so Carl Sagan goes off and writes the book and there's a movie and Kip says, well wait maybe you can go backward in time like and then so he started writing <laughs> physics papers about can you travel backward in time using wormholes
2: But it wouldn't be very far back in time, right it would just be sort of
0: what it's, there's it's like being a little bit pregnant like once you're back in time <laughs> you're as back as far as you want to go
2: right but you're in a different physical location too no or you can just be like well whatever.
0: There's no such thing as a different physical location because there's no such thing as the same physical location. Like once you're, you're simply at a different location in space-time. Right. Now, it's true if you built a time machine for the first time by making a wormhole and then moving it around, you could never go back further than the first moment you built the wormhole because it would always have had to be in the past. So if you built it now, you could people from the future could come back to now, but you couldn't go back before you built it.
2: And indeed, because Sean told me that yeah, yeah. in the book, the characters who want to know where the hell did these time machines come from, they never are able to find out. They're able to go back quite far. We know the machines were built kind of during the late um, Cambrian and early Ordovician. Ordovician, by the way, great uh, geological time period. Definitely check it out. Great name, yeah. Um, It's it's great. Um, Five stars, really good time period. And uh, and so they do go back, and they kind of see what the machines looked like early in their lives, um, and they learn how to eat trilobites, um, which is a bit frustrating, because it turns out there's not a lot of meat on trilobites. Um, So um, I was going to also say about Carl Sagan uh, in my novel, because it is a slightly different timeline and um, uh, gender politics are a little bit different, um, Carl Sagan never became popular. Instead, Lynn Margulis, uh, the great biologist, became popular and had an incredibly popular television show called Microcosmos um, <laughs> about um, kind of how our cells work and how um, in ecosystems work. And those of you who know Lynn Margulis's work um, know that she had this great phrase that she would use to describe humanity. She said, "We are the great meteorite because we had this huge effect on the environment." Um, and so the, the riot girls, who are also science nerds, love to say that to each other. We are the great meteorite. Um, also, so. it was
0: definitely aliens, right? Like, it was obviously built by aliens. Come I, on. There's no other option on, here. Come
2: on, Sean. I mean...
0: Wormholes don't just happen in, you know, the Earth's crust.
2: Right. I agree that it was probably not... And I don't know. there were no
0: civilizations hanging around building wormholes. How do we know? Science. Science we don't baby. know that for
2: sure. I mean, we don't. Look, I mean, There's they could have been building record. with, people could have been building with materials that didn't, you know, endure that long. The machines might have endured, but like they might How have How many built,
0: millions of years ago are we talking? We're talking half a billion years. Yeah, I, I don't think that there were multicellular organisms back then. Well,
2: but we don't know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> just saying i
2: mean that's the that's the wonderful thing about discovery science you know right. and, and this is an alternate right. timeline too so you know so i wanted to be... ask
0: you like how much like clearly you have to make up some rules right i mean and this is probably half fun and half frustrating <laughs> clearly <laughs> the the fact that you can't send a weapon backward in time you made that up physics didn't make that up so like how much went into the what are the rules that will keep it interesting but still make a good story
2: Yeah, I mean, that was actually a big part of it for me was um, after I got the bad news that, in fact, time travel was not ever going to be real. um, I was like, okay, well, it still needs to have a bunch of rules. Um, And it is true that aliens makes a lot of sense because the rules are quite arbitrary. Like, you can go back... With your clothes on, um, which is mostly me just kind of making fun of the Terminator. Um, you know, because it's like, it's such an arbitrary thing. It's like, well, you can send a machine back, but he has to be naked. I mean, or it has to be naked. Um, so, but the machines seem to be able to do a lot of things, or the interface which controls these wormholes seems to be able to recognize people. Um, It won't allow a person to go back to the same time twice. So you can go back and visit your own past, but then if you try to go back again, you're burned out of that time. You just, it will, the wormhole will not open if you program it to go back to that time. So you can't go back again and again, like Groundhog Day style, and like relive your high school prom over and over again, um, or whatever. Um, and then, um, Because,
0: by the way, it wouldn't be Groundhog Day style. There'd be a thousand copies of you trying to eat at the same diner, right? It wouldn't be replace the version that was already there.
2: Exactly, yeah. So, I mean, I guess you could have the original you doing all the stuff and then the future you coming back over and over so it would just be that future you wouldn't be well no you're right More yeah they would just keep kind con- ugh anyway ugh. so we're not going to do Early that day, yeah. not going to do that um only one yeah the man who folded himself yeah that's a key key narrative in this tradition um so that's where like a bunch of Versions of this guy go back in time, and they all wind up having a giant gay orgy together um, because that's what you do. It was the early '70s, um, <laughs> and so um, so there was that. One of the main limitations um, was indeed you can't bring weapons back, although there are there do turn out to be some loopholes for that. There's they eventually meet a, a far future time traveler who is able to bring basically a sonic screwdriver back because you gotta have a sonic screwdriver. It's time travel. Um, and then the big barrier, I had to have a way so that because this is a heavily edited timeline, everybody knows about time travel. What's to stop everyone from going back in time all the time? It would just be ridiculous, right? Um, so. The wormholes will only open for people who have been living in physical proximity to them for about four to five years. Um, And there's a long geeky reason why there's this specific amount of time. But the fact is that in order to become a time traveler, you basically have to work as a grad student near one of these wormholes for, for a grad student amount of time. Um, and so...
0: Alien professors built these wormholes, there's no question. I mean
2: we just don't know <laughs> um, that's what's delightful and that was the other thing is that I really wanted to give the I wanted to make time travel into not as it is usually portrayed as a form of engineering where it's like a dude it's always a dude in his garage like building you know, a gun that shoots you into another universe or a car that drives you into another universe. I wanted it to be something that was technology so advanced that it was indistinguishable from nature. Um, And I wanted it to feel like, um, you know, studying it to feel like studying astronomy or cosmology, something that humans have been involved with for thousands of years, initially involved with it because they thought it was magic or some kind of spiritual thing, and at that same time gathering data that later became useful for science. And so at one point the characters talk about how frustrating it is that they don't know that much about the machines, but at least they know that they're scientific as opposed to magical so they're they feel quite triumphant about that um, and that's that is one of their main discoveries. Is and that plenty not of room magic. for a
0: sequel here, right? Have you thought of that? I mean, there's a whole no. world of time travel that we can, you know, we can find the, we can whole completely Prometheize this, right?
2: We could. Um, it could be like Terminator. And see, yeah. that's why I don't really want to do sequels, because like you guys know what's happening with the Terminator circle it sequels. Downhill. It's not, it's yeah. not. You know, Terminator Two was great. You know, but. Um, yeah, so, no, I'm not a sequel writer.
0: But it's always, in time travel, there's always the um, battle, right, between visiting the past and changing it, right? So there's versions of time travel where you can't change anything, and there's versions where you change everything, and then somehow your picture disappears in the future and stuff like that. So y- yes. You, <laughs> you, yeah, <laughs> you, so my, my uh, so far, my be, besides your book, my greatest... Uh, contribution to fictional time travel narrative was I was a consultant on Avengers Endgame, Oh, and oh maybe s- you can explain. And they said to us. <laughs> oh, you know, I did not have you know final edits, <laughs> but uh, you know we were in the room like every, everyone was there, the Russo brothers and everything, and they were like yeah, tell us how time travel works. And so I I, I had my spiel as you know, and uh, and they said yeah, but but what about I, I actually used the example, like, you know, your picture would not disappear because you did something in the past. And they said, yeah, but what about Back to the Future? And I said something, uh, and either I, I don't even remember, either I or someone else in the room said, so you're telling me Back to the Future is just bullshit? <laughs> and that line appeared in Avengers Endgame in the mouth of Ant Man. Nice. So I think that, you know, I've had my you little have, impact. have, yeah. 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 It's
2: funny because um, there's sort of two. I should
0: update my bio, actually. Yeah, you really should. Yeah, That's you, awesome. can, you
2: should get a writer credit. Um, so I think um, there's sort of two versions of time travel that we think about. There's the Back to the Future version, and then there's the Rick and Morty version, right? Those are the two pillars of time travel, I think. <laughs> um and in Rick and Morty, of course, there's a plethora. There's a multiverse. I'm, right. I'm sure you're familiar with this fine I am. work. Yes, I am. Um, and they are, of course, related to one another. And so in Rick and Morty, there's you know multiple versions of Rick, multiple versions of Morty, um, and various other characters. In Back to the Future, there's just the one timeline. And so because I was told I could have a literary device, I chose to have one timeline because I wanted the characters to kind of confront the kind of results of what they'd done. Right. Unlike in Rick and Morty, where they go around kind of screwing up universes. Knowing and then...
0: it will be rebooted. Yeah, well, it's... But there's also the 12 Monkeys version where you can't edit. You can't change anything. You mm-hmm. can visit, but you had already visited. You were always there, right? Mm-hmm. And that's much more restrictive, but it's another way to do time travel.
2: The causal loop, you mean, where it's like you've always... You were, you know, I almost always... wore my
0: T-shirt. I have a T-shirt from, uh, based on Lost, uh, which says, whatever happened, happened. That was mm-hmm. their motto for time travel. Like, if you d- if you go back to the future and you d- back to the past and you did something, that thing had always been done. You're not changing anything.
2: Yeah. So, and that's in sort of time travel tropes. We we think of that as a causal loop. So it's like you ha- you always had to be there right. to set yourself up to be this thing. And um, and so it it is that version of time travel to me seems like the most kind of conservative version. Yeah, it's it basically is. that there's a fate. There's nothing you can do. You can't actually get a Terminator from the future to come and help you prevent nuclear war.
0: Welcome to um, the laws of physics.
2: Yeah, I don't, but is that, is that, oh, is that yeah. absolutely like there would be, but there's also a multiverse.
0: Yeah. As so, far as we know, it still obeys the laws of physics, the multiverse. But
2: you could jump into another universe and have another outcome.
0: Just like the laws of physics said you did. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but didn't. that's not we a don't co- know. Yeah.
2: I mean, I think that. Um,
0: we don't know actually the the relationship between multiple universes and time travel is one of the things that physicists haven't thought about very carefully that that really is it, it's an open possibility but right now it is just a literary device because we know there could be multiple universes. I wrote a book about them right there and we know there could be time travel but no one has really put them together
2: I mean I guess like what multiverses are Good for is less time travel and more alternate history. Yep. So there's an, So instead of being stuck in this causal loop in one timeline where there's nothing you can do, you could jump into the universe where like you grew up to be like a clown right. and like and that and you'd be like, oh thank God I can finally join the circus or whatever or like perform at birthday parties and like <laughs> I know that was probably there, there is there is I, I hate to bring you. this up
0: but there's a moral dilemma here. Mm-hmm. If you believe that there's only one timeline, but you can edit it,
1: mm-hmm. then
0: in some sense, there were billions of people experience something who suddenly stopped existing. Yep. And you're history's greatest monster for making that happen. Well, <laughs> we're yeah. Literally genocidal.
2: There's, I mean, it's interesting. There's a lot of moral questions that come up with editing the timeline. One of them happens a lot in narratives where someone invents a time machine. And so once you invent it, then there's this question of like, well, you're the one who is disrupting everything. In a timeline where, like mine, where it's heavily edited and we know people are editing it all the time, what the geologists have found is that things don't change that much. You can go back and you can try really hard to change things. If you kill one person, it doesn't wind up having a huge effect because um, as they say, you know, you can go back and try to kill Hitler and then you get like Zittler or Bitler. And the reason why is because Hitler is the result of a social movement. He's not like a special dude. He's just like the guy who's like the face of white supremacy in Germany in the mid 20th century. Um, and so it could have been a lot of different people. Yeah,
0: I like that, because it's sort of, I mean, that does make sense. You can change things, but there's some inertia. It's harder to change things in big ways than in small ways. That makes perfect sense.
2: Yeah, and so, but I do think there is a moral question, and I think, and my characters have been taught in academia that they shouldn't be changing things, partly for moral reasons, partly just because to preserve the timeline, because if it's happened, it must have been great, you know, because history is just great. You know, it's, it's automatically, if it's happened, it must have like, come out the right way or happened in the correct way and we wouldn't wanna mess around with it. Um, and they, like activists in the present, aren't satisfied with that. But
0: that's also, isn't that like the moral of so many time travel stories in fiction that like hubris will bring you down if you try to change things. You know, things are all, you can only ever make things worse. And I like that your people actually made them better.
2: They make them better and also they don't do it out of hubris, right? They're not doing it to go back and become great men. They're not trying to go back and like make, bets that will make them money, they're not trying to, you know, become king of the world or whatever. Um, They're just trying to gently shift the political landscape. And we know that they've already been successful in some ways because uh, in the alternate timeline, um, women and freed slaves get the vote at the same time. Um, in 1870 which as you recall from your history uh, in our timeline um, freed male slaves got the vote but then women had to wait uh, until 1919 to get the vote and it actually divided the movement and it it caused a lot of problems Uh, so they have fixed that one thing and it's changed culture like we have lots of differences we have lynn margulis having a hit tv show instead of carl sagan um, Tim Burton made Wonder Woman movies in the 90s instead of those Batman movies that he made. Um, so there's these little differences. Um, and You'll be
0: going to Wikipedia a lot as you're reading the book, I promise you, yeah, yeah. in a good way.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, there's a lot of Easter eggs in there um, because I wanted to imagine a kind of rich transformation that also was kind of subtle because like, a lot of things are the same. Um, So I didn't worry too much about that, sort of like, if we change history, millions of people will die. It's more like millions of people's memories will be changed, which is happening all the time anyway, because they're in a heavily edited timeline. So your mind is not your own. Your history is constantly being stolen and rewritten. Does this sound familiar? I don't know (laughs) if if any of you have experienced that feeling of someone telling you that your history is a lie or that something you experienced didn't really happen or... You know, that somebody had a phone call that wasn't really a phone call or whatever. Um, Sorry, that was like subtweeting the news. Um, (laughs) Well, it's
0: all a metaphor, right? All of this stuff about going back and fixing things is stuff that resonates with things we really can do without ancient alien machines helping us out, right?
2: I love that you're just totally all in on the aliens. What about the ancient civilization?
0: Yeah, no, I'm sorry.
2: It could have been, like, single-celled creatures. It It took billions of
0: years just to get multicellular life at all.
2: Well, maybe they really fucked up. They made Ah. these time machines, and then they just were eradicated. And, like, those time machines are basically, like, the, like, iridium layer of their civilization.
0: I smell sequel.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I have a question for you, which is that the more that I learned about time travel, the more that I realized it was impossible. It's not real. And yet, time travel is more and more popular in our culture. There's more and more stories about it. So, and yet, more and more people know that it's not real. So what do you how do what do you make of that as someone who's teaching people about why it's yeah, not real? Yeah, yeah.
0: I, I, I actually don't know. I think that... Um, I mean, one thing you can ask is why were there so few time travel stories at all before the late nineteenth century, right? Like, there just aren't. There's science fiction stories in various ways. There's myths and legends and fantasies, and there's ancient robots and androids, but there's not a lot of time travel. And uh, H. G. Wells is the Time Machine, which is what 1895 or something like that. It's in the um, '90s. Yeah. It's very there. And there's um, Connecticut
2: Yankee and King Arthur's Court, which I think is a little earlier. Yeah, that's
0: right, but still around the same time. Oh yeah, definitely. And, and but well. Wells was actually, he you know, was the first to use the word space time in this context. Really? Yeah. Was if he I, reading. If I know it correctly. Was
2: he reading. No, physics, because it was
0: before relativity came along. So
2: he invented so, the term that physicists later picked up on.
0: Well, I think that the concept, the first p- p- person to push the concept that we should treat space and time as, uh, as an integrated whole mm-hmm. was Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. <laughs> he wrote this long poem called Eureka. Do you know Eureka? He he, Edgar Allan Poe had this weird cosmology theory. Like he became a physics crackpot later in life and it was his masterwork and then no one wanted to read it and he died. But, in, but in amongst other things, he talks about how space and time are just two aspects of the same thing. And then physicists didn't catch on to this until like 1908, mm-hmm. right? But I think that... Uh, So that's what I don't understand. I don't understand why uh, writers like Poe and H.G. Wells got there. But once physics figures out that space and time are similar, then I think you start to think of time as a place you can go, Mm -hmm. right? Whereas people just didn't think of that before. Mm -hmm. So I I tend to think that time travel stories became popular only in the 20th century just because we conceptualize what time is slightly differently.
2: Hmm. You know, what was really common before the late nineteenth century were histories and histories that were like confabulations and alternate and histories, yeah. Alternate right. histories. Well, oftentimes they were supposed a, to be real histories. Right. There's a blurry boundary, were, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, where know. it was like, I wrote the fairy queen, and that's the history right. of England or whatever. History of Montlup, Montlup, yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of um so I, I wonder if that was the shift was that people went from um kind of visiting, thinking of time as a place they could visit that was in the past, and then they started thinking, oh, we could go to the future, or we could, um, you know, that somehow we could move around in it, because it is true that there's a difference between writing a, a weird history or yeah, writing I a magical history, right? um, but it is the same idea. It's that, it's that idea that we can be transported to another time, and that time is a place that we could go to yeah. imaginatively. Um,
0: but otherwise, no, I think there's a good PhD thesis to be written here about why the concept became so compelling Do when you it did. think
2: physicists were reading sci-fi and were thinking about it from that, or they, it was just totally no. independent, like that they were...
0: No, because like, it was American fiction writers, and it was German physicists who did this, so I don't hmm. think they were reading each other.
2: Well, H.G. Wells is British, but yeah, British, they're writing sorry, in English. Uh, in English, yeah. Fair enough. Right. Huh. I wonder if they were like having little conversations. Does anyone know? No one knows. <laughs> Laurie,
1: do you know? Uh the one that happened um in around the um, eighteen
0: seventies onwards is um the big change is that people start to get regular access to, to accurate clocks. That's one of the things that happened, and also changing labor practices mean
2: that people start thinking about time in this whole different way that's related to labor, their state of life right, yeah, that's so true. Yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense, yeah, because suddenly time becomes something that is, well, something that, yeah, you, you can commodify it. You can trade time. Um, people start having stock markets where you have, you know, futures that you can trade. Yeah, that's interesting. So it's I, think, but I think
0: that's probably it because the physicists were also inspired by exactly that. So I think it's like a common cause inspiring everybody, right? Mm-hmm. It, uh Einstein's Clocks and Poincaré's Maps, you know this book? By Peter Gallison, who is a wonderful historian of science, and he he argues that the theory of relativity uh, put together by Einstein and Poincaré and others was, you know, it's in our minds this incredibly abstract, mathematical, universe-sized thing, but he says it was because Einstein was in a patent office and the things to patent in 1905 were clocks and because Poincaré worked for the Bureau of Longitude and he was making maps and so they started thinking about space and time differently.
2: So basically capitalism causes time travel.
0: <laughs> I'm sure mercantilism would have done it just as well. Yeah. That didn't though. <laughs> the machines, the technology were not there, yeah.
2: Yeah. And I mean yeah. I mean, I guess you had, you know, things like longitude and latitude, which were kind of starting to have time well, you in there. But
0: you, you couldn't get longitude right until you had good clocks.
2: Yeah. yeah so so yeah, really we can blame clocks. Harrison, yeah. The yeah. commodification of our days. Um yeah, I mean that's interesting. So a popular technology changes our cultural understanding changes our scientific understanding around the same time. Um, And then, you know, I mean, one can compare it to the way people are constantly saying today, having computers in our pockets is changing our notion of space, basically. Um, and making it all cyber and shit.
0: Well, and the notion of our brains. We tend to think of our brains as computers because we have computers now. You know, they didn't think of them that way 100 years ago.
2: Yeah, well, we also think of our brains as separate from our bodies now, too, which is also a very weird thing Like to be like, yes, yeah. we can quantify our brains. We will upload our they brains, yeah. which I think is complete
0: yeah. garbage. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> have we started taking questions from the audience? Did that um, happen?
2: That can happen. Yes, we oh. should take questions from the audience for sure. Yes. All right, if you have questions, please phrase them in the form of a question.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I have a question about um, Everett's uh, many worlds theory. I'm curious, is there any predictive power that you attribute to this theory? Sure. So for those of you who don't know, uh, I wrote a book called Something Deeply Hidden, which is about quantum mechanics, and uh, in particular, my favorite version of quantum mechanics, the many worlds theory of quantum mechanics. And it gets a bit of a bad rap, uh, the many worlds theory, because it sounds like it's a theory about many worlds, which it's not really. There are many worlds there, but that's not that's a prediction of the theory, not an important fundamental axiom of the theory. The axioms of the theory are just... The Schrodinger equation, which is the equation that governs quantum mechanical systems, is never violated. That's it. That's the prediction. So if you want to test it, just do experiments that look for the Schrodinger equation being violated. And people are doing those experiments right now. And uh, so far, no, no detection of anything yet. Yeah? Yeah.
2: I mean, I think that now there is, I mean, certainly for me, it's very important to be consulting science and being inspired by science. But at the same time, I mean, I think that there's limits to it as well, because I think if you're going to tell a story that's strictly, as I said at the beginning, if I'm going to tell a time travel story, if I wanted to be purely scientifically accurate, I just would not have told this story. Um, And I would have, I could have told a story about magic or something like that. Uh, But it was very important for me to actually evoke the scientific process. So I guess there's different ways that science gets into fiction. I think it's definitely true that scientists are inspired by fiction. I hear people all the time say, you know, the reason why they became a scientist was from reading science fiction, which I think is awesome. Um, But one of the things that I did in my novel when I was disappointed to discover that the time machines wouldn't be accurate, is I really wanted the scientists to feel accurate and for all of the apparatus around the machines to feel accurate. And so, like I said, they have to get grants and they have to um, file requests to use the machines. There's only five machines. Um, And I kind of got that idea from astronomers who I've talked to who want to use, say, the Hubble or they want to use one of the really big telescopes on Mauna Kea. And you you have to file a request to use this big machine. There's only one of them and you know you might get like 10 minutes like at midnight on one day and you kind of like telnet into your session or whatever probably they don't use
0: telnet anymore telnet is probably okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not a little in too this insecure yeah, yeah.
2: So yeah, otherwise everyone would be getting in there. But yeah, you're get you're sort of. Um, so I want. So in other words, even when it's not scientific, there's still this kind of reflection of how the scientific process works and how it isn't just kind of like a dude in a room with a light bulb over his head. It's like a huge community of people who are governed by this industry around science. But I don't know. For you as a physicist, do you find like were you inspired by science fiction when you were?
0: I read a lot of science fiction, but it was actually just reading nonfiction science books that got me interested in science. But I, I you know, I do... Look, I consulted on Avengers. Like, they're not really in it for the scientific accuracy, right? Why That's do you not, think they
2: wanted you there? Like did Marvel
0: they... loves science consultants. Every one of their movies has science consultants. And they... It plays out in different ways. Like, usually the script is there even before you start, but they want to... You know, part of it is the spirit of science, right? They want to be able to portray scientists somewhat realistically, and the other part is they want the world to make sense, even if it's not our world. They want their world to make sense. And you know, we, you know, Jennifer, uh, who is here, was the head of the Science Entertainment Exchange, and you know, some of the first consults are with Marvel because Kevin Feige very explicitly said after Iron Man was a huge success, like he says, like someday. We're going to have a movie with Thor and Iron Man. And Thor is a Norse god, and Iron Man is a dude in a suit. And it has to make sense, right? And science is actually good at that. Like, even if it's not our world... Making a world that makes sense is so- something scientists can do well.
2: Yeah, one of the things uh, that we found when uh, when Charlie Jane and I were doing our episode on world building was that the term world building, which is now kind of a term of art and science fiction for kind of building a fictional world, whether it's like the Harry Potter world or it's the world of a more scientifically accurate book, that that actually comes from early 20th century physics where people were imagining alternate physical realities, like if you had another universe that had different laws of physics, for example. So there is this um, need, I think, in fiction when you're building, um, you know, in genre fiction, when you're building a world that doesn't have our own rules, that science can provide a framework for that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that's, uh, I mean, it's kind of delightful. It also reminds us that, um, you know, a lot of science, it is based in fact, It is based in evidence, but a lot of it is imaginative. You know, a lot of it is like, well, what if this could happen? Like, let's check it out. Let's do some experiments and find out. Um, Especially with discovery sciences, where we don't know why the hell things work the way they do. Like, we know what they're doing, but why? Why is time?
0: Yeah, I did. I had an uh, eye-opening experience when I did a consult for a movie that hasn't even been made yet, as far as I know, where gravity reversed. Right. Like, so there are little pockets of of regions of of uh, here on Earth where suddenly the Earth was pushing things. Right. Is that and a thing? No, it's okay. not a thing. It's
2: <laughs> like, whoa, that's awesome. <laughs> I know.
0: Well, so this is this is exactly the reaction, right? So, um, the to her enormous credit, the actress, who is scheduled to star in this movie, um, wanted to, she was playing a theoretical physicist, and so she wanted to like meet some physicists and talk to them and know what that was like. So she visited Caltech and I organized, you know, so my graduate students could talk to her. And she came with one of the producers of the movie and they first explained the movie, like, yeah, like, you know, square mile here, gravity starts pushing you up and then it goes away. And all the graduate students are like, no, that will not happen. (laughs) That cannot happen. That is not possible. And the phase transition was I said to them, your job as the science consultant, don't treat the movie script as a new theory of physics. Treat it as data. Mm
1: -hmm. It
0: happened. You don't have a choice to say it can't happen. It happened. Now explain it. And suddenly they were like, oh, well, maybe it could be this, right? Yeah. And so, like, this is what physicists are good at. You can come up with explanations ex post facto for just about anything. So yeah. if you're—if there's any writers here who talk to scientists and are told you can't do that, just say, no, I'm doing it. Tell me how it could make sense.
2: Yeah, and that was what you did when I talked to you about time travel. Was you And, and that was, you know, when the character Anita is sort of in her office hours and talking to Beth, and she says, like, well, maybe the time machine's we aren't actually changing history. We're just observing this background shuffling that's always going on. Maybe there's this force out there that's constantly rearranging the timeline and we normally don't notice or remember it, but when we get into the machine, we're able to remember it. And that was one of the things that you came up with. You're like, well, that could be a thing that was happening. Um, The other thing I wanna point out um, before we move on is that um, a big part of my book is about not using science to figure out how time works, but using social science and using data from history to figure out how historical change works among humans, Uh, not just in the timeline, but how do we change societies? How do we change political systems? Um, And that's an area, too, where we have a lot of data. We have historical data. A lot of it has been heavily rewritten and heavily edited and transformed um, over time, so it's not terribly accurate. It's sort of just like a heavily edited timeline Um, but it's a very contested idea that we might have a theory of how history works or that we might have a theory of how to change um, you know a political regime and so what these characters are struggling with is how do you actually do that and so there's this parallel tracks where they're trying to figure out well how does time travel work but also how do we change things so that these men's rights activists from the future don't erase abortion rights in the United States. Like, what, do, what can we do? How do we organize? And so they discover that organizing is actually, there is a kind of science to it. Um, there is a kind of um, method you can use, and it's not exactly what you would expect. It turns out that you, they need to, for example, organize with belly dancers in order to uh, change things in the 1890s. So, so there's belly dancers who are political, um, and that's an unexpected twist, but it's sort of how history works, is that often groups that you don't expect to change things actually can when, um, when other groups who are maybe explicitly political can't really make a change. Um, and this is actually, in the book, it's actually based on real historical stuff that happened at the World's Fair in Chicago where belly dancers played an incredibly important role in women's rights. Um, and, of course, mostly their contributions have been erased for Reasons that you might guess, because they were mostly women of color, and they were immigrants, and a lot of them were sex workers, and so um, you know their contributions are not considered as important as like things that white ladies did, um, who were proper, uh, proper white ladies. So, um, so yeah, it's interesting to think about those two things in parallel: the world building of physics and then the world building of sort of political science and social science. Do we have other questions? Yeah. In your work- Captain <laughs> this is not a ship of war this is a ship of peace um yeah no i i guynan is is a great character um they do uh as as we move through the book um the timeline is being changed and and i um don't mind telling you that there is a happy ending. Like the good guys, kind of, they temporarily win. They they get a win. Um, there's never any permanent win because you know history is always being rewritten. Um, but it, it's not a sad, depressing ending. Uh, it's sort of happy. And um, they do, as they change the timeline, they start to sense it. Like they, if you're if you're a traveler and you actually do change history, you remember the original version. So the people who are actually in the process of changing it. Um, have a ritual, Uh, the time travelers when they get together, they get together and they sit down and they each tell, um, they each begin their meetings by saying, this is the history that I remember. And they each remember different versions of history. Um, And some of them remember abortion rights being legal. Some of them remember a history where women never got the vote. Um, And so they're all kind of trying to um, pool that knowledge and remember it together. Um, so they do, the question about intuition is interesting because no one ever explicitly talks about intuition, but they have a lot of hypotheses where they think, okay, if I go back to this particular period in time, I think I can make an edit that will matter. And I wonder for you, do you feel like intuition goes into physics? Like where you, I think it might be a thing.
0: Oh, entirely. I mean, because what you spend your time doing as a theoretical physicist anyway is saying, well, you know what, we have a theory of the world that's pretty good, we want a better one. So which one? There's one that we have, and there's an infinite number that we don't have that we're thinking about, right? And so how do you pick and choose among the infinite number of hypotheses you might want to investigate? And different people have different tastes about which direction to go in, which different intuitions, like, do you like just smash everything and start again? Or do you make little tiny changes? And, you know, what is, like, Einstein really thought that, the speed of light being the fastest you could go, that was the, really the most important thing. And that's kind of what bugged him about quantum mechanics. He just mm-hmm. didn't like it. And other people are like, yeah, speed of light, no biggie. Yeah,
2: whatever. Ooh, it's that's... just photons. Yeah. Like, what's so cool about that? <laughs> I mean, whatever. Um, yeah. So other question? Did, yeah. Or er, you had a question back there. That's a really good question. Um, So they, I always, I think I always feel compassion for all of my characters. I mean, there is a bad guy in the story. I mean, Anthony Comstock, who was kind of a Victorian moralist in the U.S. who, um, basically destroyed uh, women's reproductive rights for many, many years, almost 100 years. Um, So he sucks, and I wanted people to hate him, and that's easy because he's, like, very hateable. And his followers are all shitbags. So that was, again, that was easy. And they're not well-rounded characters. Like, they're not really characters. They're just kind of bad guys out there. Um, But there are a number of characters who are working on changing history where, you know, there are these questions that I had. I mean, there's characters who decide to murder men in order to make the timeline better. That's what those riot girls are doing. I didn't. I spared you. I did not make you listen to the um, rape murder scenes. Um, scenes. Scenes. Well, there's only one. There's only one rape, but there's a lot of murder, um, and um, and uh, you know it's hard to make characters likable when they're murdering people even though the people they're murdering like when it happens these guys are terrible these are men who are like predators and who are um you know creeping on teenage girls and things like that um so i it's funny because i wanted people to question their methods because like i said murder is bad um but I also wanted to make sure that there was a way that we could understand why they felt so desperate that they had to do it. Um, And so I think the thing that was surprising to me in the end was um, how Tess, who's the time-traveling character, um, she, she has a lot of, she has sworn off violence. She doesn't want to do any violence, but she still feels, has violent feelings. And it was, um, I really wanted, I was kind of surprised at how I felt like by the end she felt, this isn't really a spoiler because this is more like a character arc, but it feels like she's a tough character to love even though we've kind of fallen in love with her and I wanted that to happen. And indeed, people who've read the book have kind of said to me like, ooh, that was harsh. Um, So... Yeah, it's hard. I mean, it's hard to have characters who are murderers, even if they're murderers for great justice, because like, you know, so, um, so that was the hard part. I mean, the character of Beth, who was in the office hours asking Anita questions, she's easy to love. I mean, she's kind of an innocent. So, um, but yeah, it's a lot harder when someone is kind of bloodthirsty. So yeah, that was a tough one. Um, I had been planning on doing, uh, I had been working on this novel uh, before 2017, although 2017 and the sort of events during that year, the first year of the Trump presidency, um, definitely changed my feelings about what I wanted to do with the novel. So i had already had this novel in mind and was kind of putting notes together about it in my original plan. Um... Uh, before the country took this weird swerve um, was that the novel was going to be kind of the same plot you know women are going back in time and fighting against men's rights activists but I originally was going to have them fail and I just was going to have the kind of the lesson of the book be like well you can try really hard to change things but it's really hard and you just sometimes don't it doesn't work and so these characters will get really invested in this transformation and then they'll be fucked um, and then after I saw how quickly the country changed um, under a new regime, I started to believe in the idea that changes, radical changes could happen in real time in front of your eyes and that they didn't have to be bad changes, which is a weird lesson to get out of a change that I think affected a lot of our lives in a negative way. But I realized that I wanted to tell a hopeful story. I wanted them to win and change history. And I also wanted to tell people a hopeful story. I didn't want to tell people that things were always going to be bad because I don't believe that to be true. And also, that's not the kind of story we need right now. I feel like the story we need right now is a story of how coming together and forming alliances with each other is actually something that can work. Um, And there's historical data in real life proving that that's the case so we we know that forming alliances and resisting um, is a tried and true method of changing things so um, so basically what I'm saying is that as events were unfolding in 2017 when I was writing most of this book I was making the book more and more about hard won hope basically difficult to achieve but but there is some hope Um, but also, I mean, I did make the mistake of watching the Kavanaugh hearings. And um, yeah, if you're wondering why is there a third murder scene in the book, well that's why.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, there
2: are originally only two, first but then you I didn't quite I just get it out of your system. Threw in another one for you. <laughs> yeah, just a little release valve, yeah. exactly.
0: Did you have a question? You were Yeah, you were raising your hand. Yes, I mean science advising for movies is a very different thing than like yeah we had a hour two hour phone conversation that wasn't so hard and it was really early in the process right so things that I said could actually have an impact for movies it depends a lot on the movie is you know some striving young screenwriter who's never written a movie, gotten anything produced before, has some ideas and wants to chat with you, and then it's a very similar thing to talking to a novelist. If it's a Marvel movie where they have a 28-year plan and it's going to happen, and, you know, uh, your impact is much, much smaller, right? It's hard to make an edit on that particular timeline. <laughs> uh, so what you can do at best is give them some ideas um, and maybe save them some from some mistakes. Like, there was going to be a scene in Thor where... There's a planet that was flat instead of a sphere. Okay, you could imagine that. But then they were going to have a fight, and they were going to fall off the edge of the planet. And we were all like, the scientists were like, "Well, what's pulling you? Because there's no gravity down there to pull you." And there there was an argument like in the room, and Kevin Feige, who is the president of Marvel, won the argument. He's like, "Yeah, we can't fall off the edge of a planet. What were we thinking?" So maybe and it. If you live in a world where falling off the edge of a planet is okay, that's fine, but there was, had been no previous explanation for that, and, and our argument was, and I think should be, that will throw people out of the movie, right? Like, people go, oh no, come on, that wouldn't happen that way, right? Even if it's subconscious. Like, some, someone pointed out that one of the weird things about um, The Phantom Menace was there was so much CGI, You know, there were scenes where people would fall out a window and they would fall down at a constant rate, Right? They do not accelerate when they fall down There's just because they cgi did it and they didn't take care of the physics. And probably no one in the theater is sitting there thinking oh, they're not really accelerating at 9.8 meters per second squared. But they are thinking that doesn't look right yeah. somehow. And that's something a science advisor can help with.
2: Yeah, I think the thing for me that's... Um, the most helpful about consulting with scientists is it allows me to set limits. And I think that's part of the world building is, I love, I mean, I love to have limits in storytelling because that's where the rich fun stuff comes up is when you're butting up against either the limits of reality or the limits of the kind of rules that you've set up. And so, I always try in my science fiction to just be as scientific as possible, except with time travel. Trust me, my next novel, it's like all terraforming, and it's going to be super <laughs> scientific. Um, and it is, it's is—it's going to be grounded in as much science as possible. Um, but it's great, because then someone has just sat you down and said to you, like, no, you can't fall off the edge of the planet. Or like, this is actually how geological systems work. And it's delightful, because then you you know what you're going to say, and you know what your characters are going to run around on. And so it's, it's great. And it has the bonus of being scientifically accurate in some cases. <laughs> I did not pin anything up on the walls. I was worried that I would have to, and that was one of the reasons I never wanted to write time travel. Um, so, um, but I did have, you know, I had a document um, in, I had a bunch of stuff in Evernote, and then I put some stuff in Google Docs so I could kind of carry it around with me wherever I was, whichever laptop I was on. Um, and I was revising it a lot. I mean, I did, I consulted with Sean, like, like actually before I started writing, in fact. Um, or maybe I had, I had taken a bunch of notes, but I, um, so I knew I, how I wanted time travel to work, um, and then I had to because the timeline was changing. I had to make sure that as I changed it, people were remembering the correct things or remembering the new things that had happened. Um, so it was a lot of um, just note taking and like con- consulting my own notes for continuity. Um, and then luckily my editor also helped. Um, although I think I was more rigorous about that stuff than she was. She was very rigorous about a lot of the other writing, but like. I uh, was less concerned about that nitty gritty stuff about like, did she really go there at that time? Um, so yeah, it was it was a pain in the ass. It's definitely the hardest plot device I will ever use. It was, yeah, it was a lot of plotty McPlot Plot stuff. Yeah.
0: <clears throat> I can tell you, you know, the idea of fantasy casting where like if you're writing a screenplay and in your mind, you know, uh, Harrison Ford is playing this character and Beyonce is playing that character and whatever. Uh, the best screenwriters totally do that. Like, they copy out little pictures of their favorite people and imagine and write the role with with those photographs p- pinned up to their corkboard. For
2: sure, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah actually, the character of Gloria Garcia, who you heard me reading about, who's the lead singer of Great Bape, is actually, her look and her sound is based on a friend of mine, uh, Desi Lopez. Um, and then when I finished the book, uh, Desi and I got together and wrote uh, the mu- she wrote the music for one of the Great Bape songs, and we made a video. So if you search YouTube for Great Bape, what I like to see, you will see um, a Great Bape cr- concert from 1992, um, and it was it was great. It was a really fun <laughs> process to to make that happen because she really embodied. Uh, Gloria Garcia and she was also when we shot the video she was seven months pregnant so there is nothing like seeing like a punk rock pregnant lady going slut slut <laughs> slut it was just like amazing so
0: <clears throat> I did not make any music videos for my book about quantum mechanics you should though. I know now I'm thinking I about it I could imagine yeah. like
2: I feel like you and Jonathan Colton could like get together and make some magic
0: Hugh Everett and the universes yeah, yeah. I mean.
1: <laughs> how many universes are there
0: we don't know, but it's it's possibly an infinite number. By the way, Hugh Everett, who invented the many worlds theory, of course, his son Mark Everett is E from eels. So there's sort of a whole bunch yeah. of um, videos out there. So are
2: you saying that literally Crisis on Infinite Earths is scientifically accurate?
0: Exactly. Wow. Yes, okay, you learned something some here world. tonight
2: about the DC universe, um, and that's great. So I don't. I, do we need to wrap up? I don't I know think, if yeah. we. I think.
0: Here's our boss. Yeah.
2: We can take one more question. Can
0: I ask a second question? No one else wants to? Oh, well, wait. No, yeah, yeah, yeah sorry. He wants it. Yeah, go uh, ahead. It has to do with the curvature of space-time. Okay.
2: All right. Let's finish up with the curvature of space-time.
0: Yes. When we see the visualization of like flat space, it's like a fabric, and then you have a marble, and it prints like the graph well. But obviously, we don't live on a sheet of paper, in a 3D world. Kind of, so does the sun rest on 3D fabric, or right. does, uh, does the fabric kind of go through matter? Good. So what's being referred to here is Einstein's idea that space-time is curved, and we experience that curvature as gravity, like the reason apples fall from trees, the apple's just trying to go in a straight line, but the Earth is curving space-time around it, and very often the visualization that you get for that exactly as you say is like a big rubber sheet and you put a bowling ball in it and then you can roll a marble around the bowling ball right and it moves around because the bowling ball is stretching the thing but it's not a great visualization because as you say like there's gravity pulling the bowling ball when it's pulling it in a direction and what is analogizing to what so uh and that's just because we have trouble visualizing four-dimensional space-time very well in our heads right so all the visualizations are going to be cheap, and more, more importantly, they're all going to be embedded in space. So yes, in the real world, the Earth below us is bending the space right here in this room, and to the extent that there is lines of, you know, grid lines on space-time, if you wanted to draw them, they would go right through the Earth, and they would be warped as they came into the Earth, and they would unwarp as you went backwards. And uh, that's why apples fall, that's why the moon goes around the Earth the whole bit, because space-time is curved
2: so you're all living in a giant curve right yep. now. So, I think that's a good note to end on. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for coming Keep up out, the you curve. guys. Thanks all for right. yeah, ke- thanks right. for curving.
0: <laughs> 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 You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.